Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hey, welcome in. It is indeed Downtown, the podcast. Episode number 218. Brought to you as always by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Rich Kimball here along with Carrie Haskell. Two terrific conversations for you this week. A little later, we dip into the archives to revisit a conversation with NASA historian Bill Barry. This week, the 53rd anniversary of Apollo 11, the first moon landing. And so we'll talk about that with Bill Barry. Up first, though, a fascinating story behind a brand new album. The album is called Earl's Closet, the Lost Archive of Earl McGrath, 1970 to 1980. Earl McGrath, a a very interesting, uh, you might even say Zelig-like guy who uh, was everywhere, was in the music business for a while, ran a couple of record labels, not with great success, but was the guy that knew everybody. He was the insider's guy, uh, hosting parties and get-togethers that would draw uh, an impressive and eclectic group of people. And uh, recently, our friend Joe Hagan, UMaine graduate and author of the wonderful book on Jan Wenner and Rolling Stone called Sticky Fingers, uh, set to producing an album made up of some lost music, songs that were literally found in Earl's closet. Joe Hagan tells the story, and we talk about some of the music here on Downtown. Hi there, Joe. Hey, how you doing? Man, I've been listening to this all weekend and it is it is so great. It's such a wonderful dive into everything that uh, for a guy who grew up in that era, everything that made seventies music great, and it's all new to us. Yeah, well, it was all new to me when I, you know, found it literally in the closet of Earl McGrath, this kind of uh, legendary figure from that era, and you know, suddenly decided, wow, I have this. Uh, untapped little slice of history that needs to be uh, kind of brought out into the world. So that's how this record kind of came to be. So for anybody who doesn't know, can you give them a little primer on who Earl McGrath was? Sure. Well, I discovered him when I was writing my book on Jan Wenner in Rolling Stone magazine, and he was this sort of um, kind of like a jet setter of the 70s. He was an art collector. He was a uh, he was married to an Italian princess. And really what he was was kind of the host of a very important salon in in L.A. and in New York back in the 70s in which he would bring in all of these different people, whether Mick Jagger or Andy Warhol, you know, socialites and European, you know, aristocrats and all manner of people from different walks of life and kind of mix them together. That was sort of his thing. And at one point, he was given a record label under Atlantic Records. Uh, by his friend Ahmet Erdogan, who founded Atlantic Records. And he, you know, for a time, and then he was also president of Rolling Stones Records. Mick Jagger hired him to run his own record label. And so he was this sort of unusual figure, but very well known to people who were well known. And that's kind of an unusual thing to say, but it, that's the kind of guy he was. So you had interviewed him uh, for your book, and then his uh, after he passed away, his widow... Uh, offered you a chance to look at some photographs that she had taken? Well, what happened is the widow was, well, his, I should say, his um, his wife, Camilla, she was also dead, and they had no heirs. They had friends who uh, were sort of managing their estate after their deaths, 
And Camilla, the wife, had documented their lives for four decades in this incredible photo albums that just, it's like a who's who. You would flip through them and you'd just, you know, there's a famous artist or actor, Harrison Ford or Mick Jagger, Keith Richards, and on and on it went and at these private parties that they had thrown. And so I went there to look at those pictures, and I did use some of them in my book, Sticky Fingers. If you were to pick that up, you'd see uh, that Camilla McGrath was the name attached to some of those photos. And while I was in the apartment that they used to live in, uh, I tripped upon this closet full of these tapes. And I asked the woman who was managing this estate, what are these things? And she goes, well, that's the sort of work product from his time at Atlantic Records in the 70s. So I, I get a stepladder. I step up to the top of the ladder because they were way up high on these shelves. And the first thing I pulled off was a master tape to Some Girls by the Rolling Stones. (laughs) Literally a studio tape that, you know, was a version of that album that didn't end up coming out, like a different mix. And I was just, you know, I I freaked out. (laughs) Well, and no wonder when you started rummaging through and found a a literal treasure trove here of, uh, not just not just unknown songs, but uh, in some cases, even unknown performers, and some, uh, remarkably, that you weren't even able to track down. I, I love the version of Where Have All the Flowers Gone by Blood Brothers Six that sounds, I don't know, like this amalgam of, uh, of sort of uh, the stylistics of the 1970s uh, meeting the L.A. country rock sound, but you couldn't find them anywhere. That's right. Yeah, that, there were three... Uh, tapes I found who I could not track down the artists. There was very little to go on except for what was just scrawled on a box that the tape was in. In this case, it was the Blood Brothers 6. You could tell that it was a Philly soul group. It had that sound. You know, you mentioned the stylistics or the Delphonics. It had, you know, a falsetto singer with backup singers, and it was a soul kind of groove to it, and it was just, you know, fantastic song. And it was also very primitively recorded, but I just kind of loved the, the mystery of it. You know, it was like, who is this? It's like, I felt like a, a little keyhole into time, and you don't know what you're looking at exactly, but you know it sounds good. And so, you know, that was one of the tracks I decided, oh, I got to put this on this project, which I'm going to call Earl's Closet, because that's where all the stuff was from. And, um, you know, it's been kind of a magical experience. And to, to not only curate these songs, but to try to write the history of Earl and the artists that I could find on the record. You know, some of them are well-known, Daryl Hall and John Oates. I find their demo tape from 1969, right? <laughs> um, Unreleased un, uh, song by Jim, the Jim Carroll band, mm. or, you know, uh, one tape, a couple of tapes said New York Dolls on them, right? And they were sort of David Johansson in a, in a rehearsal space trying out some new songs. So you had this real interesting kind of, um, you know, wonderful slice of time that nobody had ever tapped into. And, and so many different genres covered along the way. The opening track on the album uh, is a song that I knew when it was a country hit for Emmy Lou Harris uh, back in the day. Yeah. But it's uh, Delbert and Glenn, Delbert McClinton, and, and Glenn, Car- uh, Glenn Clark doing a great version of Delbert's Two More Bottles of Wine. Yeah, and that I really, I, that's the opening track on the record, and it really kind of defines you know, what the album is about, really. So, you know, these were all artists who were trying to make it, right? They sent in a demo tape to this guy who had a record label, and they thought, maybe I'll make it. And in the case of Delbert McClinton, he eventually did make it. But what you hear are these, you know, uh, uh, people 
um, taking their best shot, and uh, it, there's a purity to it, right? It's before any producers have come mm. in and, and, and cleaned it up. It's just this is what they were about. And that particular song is a true story. Two more bottles of wine. Delbert McClinton told me this in an interview that, you know, he moved to L.A. from Texas in 1971. He wanted to make it in the business. And when he got out there, his wife left him, <laughs> his wife Maggie, his name checked in the song. And, and then he had a job in a warehouse. You know, he wasn't really making it. So this, the lyrics to the song are about he finds himself sweeping out a warehouse in West L.A. And he's sort of uh, up late considering his bad fortune, but he has two more bottles of wine. Right? As long <laughs> as he's got two more bottles of wine, he'll be okay. So it's a wonderful little story. And it's, it happens to be true. And it really sets the tone for the album because so many of these people, uh, if they had a, a brush with success for many of them, it was fleeting at best. Definitely. And, uh, you know, one of the kind of heartwarming things about it was calling up some of these people. And not all of them were alive, but their families often were, and, uh, you know, wives or daughters. And they would say, oh, this means so much to us that you found, you know, this music that, in many, almost every case, none of them had these tapes. You know, these these were the only left, you know, uh, remnants of their music in some cases. And then some of these people were like, "Wow, you found this, my father or my husband's music, and it means so much to me." Or you found my music, or in some cases, right? And they were really moved by it. It was great to be able to kind of bring it out of obscurity and put it on the map and bring some context to it and and kind of feather it into this larger story. And some very interesting people uh, love the song Christopher by uh, Michael McCarty, who it, yeah. it turns out had a pretty famous stepdad. That's right. His dad was the uh, B-movie sci-fi director Ed Wood, right, who uh, <laughs> was sort of celebrated in a, in a, a, a movie of years ago, but uh, who made you know Plan 9 from Outer Space and these kind of iconic kitsch, you know, horror and sci-fi movies from the 50s. And he, course that was his stepdad and and it turned out that his stepdad was also uh, a cross dresser and he remembers like walking around his house and ed wood his stepfather is wearing a dress and it was just you know strange stories come out of making phone calls to these people and that was part i'm a journalist so i kind of loved calling these people and i I came with two orders of business one is we'd like to license this song because they own the music right the tapes are just evidence of the music and that's great but you needed to license them. And then on the other side of it, I would interview them. And their stories are in these liner notes that you find in this record, Earl's Closet. And part of the fun for me was writing these liner notes and really telling this tale of uh, this man, his closet, and all these artists inside. We're talking with Joe Hagan about Earl's Closet, the lost archive of Earl McGrath, 1970 to 1980. It's available now in, in all formats, but uh, it sounds like, boy, if people really love music, they want to get uh, the the vinyl edition that's got all of your your liner notes, all the extensive research, and some of those great photographs. Yeah, the photographs by Camilla are really extraordinary. And if you wanted, got interested in such a thing, you, there's a whole book called Face to Face that was published about a year and a half ago, and it's like a a complete, a more complete uh, picture table book of all these photographs. And it really is just this marvelous romantic time, you know, where. People hung out together in courtyards and had interesting conversations and, you know, romance and sex, drugs and rock and roll and all the things you associate <laughs> with that time. And it really is like uh, like you're, you know, getting a backstage pass to something that you didn't know existed. This time, this, these 
this Earl and his wife Camilla were really like um, alchemists of culture in a way and bringing people together that might not ordinarily get together. Um, I, I should point out that Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones gave me a quote for this um, project and was quoted in the New York Times recently about Earl, just saying that, you know, he really loved Earl because he had a eye for innovative art and that he was an amusing companion, that he was somebody that he loved to hang out with. And in fact, if you've anybody out there who's heard the song Shattered by the Rolling Stones, and you know it's sort of about New York during that dirty mm. New York heyday of the late 70s, well, that's exactly the time that Earl McGrath was like his wingman, right? They were hanging out together a lot. <laughs> and uh, so you can imagine the trouble they got into. Yeah, and he wasn't particularly successful as a record executive, but what you hear from this album is that he, he knew talent when he heard it. Definitely, definitely. And, yeah, he was sort of a distracted by his social life, which was a very rich one, <laughs> and uh, he didn't see all of his projects through. But he did, um, you know, happen to uh, discover Daryl Hall and John Oates. I mean, their career, and they've acknowledged this uh, often, that, you know, they were groping around for a record deal and they weren't getting anywhere and then they were told to call Earl McGrath and the next thing you know they're signed to Atlantic Records and uh, you know the rest is history and then same goes for the Jim Carroll band who Jim Carroll was known as a guy who wrote a it was a poet and wrote a, a kind of famous memoir called the basketball diaries um and then he had, then he formed a band and Earl uh, heard about it you know and became very involved in signing them and bringing them into the world and that's one of my favorite tracks on the record, too. It's a very rocking, interesting kind of post-punk tune that will really take you right into, you know, late 70s, early 80s New York and get, has that real vibe to it. Yeah, Carrie, can we listen to a little of that? It's the uh, Next to Last Cut, uh, Tension by the Jim Carroll Band. Let's listen to a little bit of that if we can. would uh, have a new life later on when he uh, retitled it, right? That's right. Well, so that the, the history of that is it was made for his first record, um, Catholic Boy, which I think came out in 80 or 81. And um, later, uh, maybe six years later, um, Jim Carroll Band made a uh, some soundtrack uh, music for a, a movie called Tough Turf, which anybody uh, <laughs> who maybe came of age in the 80s would know because James Spader was in it. And it was made, remade as a synth, a synthesizer tune with more of a dance vibe to it. And so this was sort of the uh, punk origins of this song. And, uh, you know, uh, Jim Carroll is somebody that uh, I feel like is due for a revival one of these days soon. A lot of, not a lot of people may remember him uh, unless you were kind of... But oh, the song they do remember is called uh, People Who Died, which is, was used in, in some movie soundtracks, but... Uh, anyway, he was uh, important to, to uh, Earl's history and um, kind of a wonderful character in his own right. 
And, and I want to listen to another song that is also one of my favorites from this great album. Uh, this is a saxophonist and singer, Norma Jean Bell. Detroit legend has played with uh, George Clinton and others, but man, what a great song. And it's like, it's like so many songs on this album, Joe, that if somebody maybe didn't know music all that well, and you said, well, these were all big hits in the seventies, people would say, yeah. well, of course they were. Yeah, exactly. Well, she, um, is one of the real, it was such a pleasure to discover that song and then to get to know her. I, you know, I, I called her up. She, she was in living in Michigan. She had had a, you know, a really serious um, kind of uh, role as a side musician in the 70s. She played with Stevie Wonder. She played with the Mahavishnu Orchestra. She toured with the Spinners. And uh, she was a great saxophone player. That was her main thing. And, in fact, uh, for people who go back and listen to that Norman Jean Bell song, and I, I hope they will, there's some really hot saxophone songs mm. on that on that record, and those are her. And uh, she was wonderful. So... Uh, one of one of the things that really made this record worthwhile for me was discovering somebody like her. And and can you tell me a little bit about the band Country? I love their song Killer. Yeah, that, well, they were the first band that Earl McGrath signed when he ran a label called Clean Records, which only had a couple of artists on it. In fact, Delbert and Glenn and Country, and Country were. Uh, the primary guy in the band was named Tom Snow, who went on to very successful mm. career as a songwriter. He'd previously been in a band with Graham Parsons uh, in Boston, of all places. Graham Parsons, uh, of course, of uh, Flying Burrito Brothers, for people who are interested in country rock. And you know that um, I, the country only put out the one record, but it's got it's got some fantastic songs on it. And you can uh, maybe go search around for them on your favorite streaming service. There's there's some stuff out there, but this track really gives you the vibe, you know, it's like there's a little Neil Young in there, a little bit of the band. There's that, that's the sort of uh, time period we're talking about. And they seem like such a great, credible band and could have gone places, but uh, maybe part of the reason they didn't is that Earl McGrath didn't really, you know, know how to do it or didn't successfully uh, put them over the top, but they definitely had the talent. I love the slogan for clean records. That's right. Everybody deserves a clean record. Um, yeah, that's uh, it, it, Earl, the man, wa had an incredible sense of humor, and he was known for this. And he, you know, he was very bemused by it. I, nobody was more bemused that he was a record executive than he was. Right? I mean, he, <laughs> he kind of tripped into the whole thing and really was given this label as a kind of on a lark by Ahmet Erdogan, who really just liked having him around as a social friend and they traveled together and they partied together and they were 
uh, you know, pranksters together. They were, were just really having fun. And this was in an era when, you know, the record business was a little bit of the Wild West, right? And people just, you might you might succeed, you might not, but they put out a lot of records. They found people in clubs, and it was a little looser, faster and looser back then, such that a guy named like Earl could even be a record executive, right? If you haven't read it yet, check out the wonderful piece about Earl's Closet and the New York Times as well. And in that piece, Joe, you refer to this as a, a core sampler of the 70s. Now that it's out there in the world after a project that has taken you a long time to come to fruition, what's it feel like to have people enjoying and experience this music for the first time? Oh, man, it is so gratifying because, you know, I, you know, how did I choose these songs? How did this decide... Uh, that they were worthwhile, it, you know, I just was listening with my ears. And so I just had to do it on a, it was partly a historical, you know, documentation for me, but it was also like, I'm a music fan first, you know, I really love this music. And I, I was like, well, I hope people like it, you know? And as I, as it's come out, people are coming to me now and they're like, I love this music. I love these songs. Who even knew about these artists? And I know I'm like, thank you. And it's finally, it's like, um, I'm hoping that this record will get out there and we can form a community around our shared enthusiasm for this music. And now I'm not just alone with it, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, everything that was great about 70s music is found in this collection. Yeah, I, I appreciate that. And uh, I, I encourage people to go check it out. And, uh, you know, if you, if you like what you're hearing, let me know. I'm out there. Earl's Closet, The Lost Archive of Earl McGrath, 1970 to 1980. Joe Hagan, uh, great to have you back on with us. Thanks uh, for being with us today, and, and thanks for all your great work and bringing this music to a, a brand new audience. Thank you very much for having me on. I appreciate it, Rich. That's Joe Hagan talking about the wonderful album Earl's Closet, The Lost Archive of Earl McGrath, 1970 to 1980. We'll take a break. When we come back after this word from Cross Insurance, we look back on Apollo 11 and the first moon landing. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross insurance where security meets strength. We came out west together with the common desire. The fever we had might have set the west coast on fire. Two months later got trouble in mind. Maggie moved out and left me behind But it's all right Cause it's midnight and I got two more bottles of wine Delbert McClinton and Glenn Clark from the album Earl's Closet And two more bottles of wine Back on Downtown, the podcast 53 years ago this week Apollo 11 landed on the moon Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin became the first humans to step on the surface of the moon. I mean, that is if you believe that actually happened. Uh, we had a chance to catch up a while back with NASA historian Bill Berry. Let's dip into the archives to talk more about Apollo 11. Bill, thanks for being with us. Rich, my pleasure. You've got a main connection, which makes it even better for us this afternoon. 
Oh yeah, that Maine's one of my favorite places. Um, we uh, were stationed up at uh, Loring Air Force Base, my first Air Force assignment, flying the KC-135 up there, and then um, the Air Force and in its infinite wisdom moved me uh, down to Pease Air Force Base in New Hampshire for my next assignment, and we actually lived in South Berwick, so I've lived on both ends of the state of Maine. Excellent. Well, you know it very well. Well, we're looking forward to a big, big anniversary of 50 years this July 20th of Apollo 11 and the moon landing. First of all, what's going on officially uh, for NASA to commemorate this event? Well, we've got a whole series of uh, events that are going on, both at uh, the various NASA centers around the country. Uh, but sort of the, the focal point for uh, the major celebration will be a three-day uh, event on the National Mall that we're doing in collaboration with the National Air and Space Museum. So that will be a, um, um, a, a big display event that will be both inside the museum and outside the museum. Uh, and the, the Smithsonian's got some uh, some surprises up their sleeve for some uh, fun programming they're gonna, going to do in the evenings there. Uh, so that'll be great. Um, NASA itself is doing a coast-to-coast uh, -coast TV broadcast on uh, the afternoon of July 19th. So from 1 to 2.30 on uh, July 19th, we'll have a 90-minute uh, broadcast that will have uh, remote uh, locations at the National Mall from that celebration there with uh, astronaut Mike Collins from the Apollo 11 crew, but also um, we'll be going remote to uh, the Kennedy Space Center in Florida, Marshall Space Flight Center in Alabama where they built the Saturn V rocket that got us to the moon, and of course Johnson Space Center in Houston, and uh, Wapakoneta, Ohio, uh, Neil Armstrong's hometown, uh, and uh, possibly some other locations as well that we're negotiating with. So there, there those, those run-up events, and then of course the uh, anniversary itself falls on Saturday, July 20th, and uh, we'll be um, rebroadcasting, uh, you know, 50 years uh, real in real time plus 50 years the the uh, the, um, the landing and the first moonwalk, uh, both on our social media and, and web channels and on NASA TV, and um, also we'll be collaborating with the Kennedy Center here in Washington D.C. for a major uh, concert on that Saturday night. So. Uh, lots of things happening uh, to, to mark this uh, golden anniversary of the first moon landing. That's wonderful. And and it highlights the scope of the operation that uh, this was um, not just uh, obviously the three men in the spacecraft or the people in Florida, but uh, crews all over the United States, engineers, scientists, mathematicians, uh, people really uh, all over the world when you take into account the people who were tracking the flight as well. Yeah, there. Um, by our count, there are about 400,000 people, just over 400,000 people involved in the mission worldwide, and that it, that did include um, um, folks at the tracking stations around around the planet, um, and uh, also some you know scientists around. There were uh, scientists who were um, involved in the. Um, decision about uh, you know what kind of samples to collect and the analysis of those samples after they came back. So literally hundreds of scientists around the world were sent uh, samples of the moon rocks after they came out of quarantine uh, to do analysis. And uh, about six months later in, in January 1970, they had a big conference to uh, compare all the results, uh, which is which is pretty interesting. But um, but even in the United States, uh, there were um, you know uh, 20,000 U.S. companies I mean, of course, the big giants like Boeing and and uh, Rockwell and North American and and Douglas and everybody else were involved in, in the, the program building these. But there were, there were 
literally 20,000 U.S. companies involved in, uh, in the Apollo program. Um, I, I should have checked, but um, I, I'm sure there were at least a few of those companies located in the, in the great state of Maine. Um, so um, I, I know there were, there were several uh, in Massachusetts where I grew up. So uh, it's, uh, it, was a, it was a widespread effort. Everybody knew somebody. That, the, the, um, Jack Leary, the guy who lived across the street from my family when I was growing up, and Mr. Leary was a local hero because he worked for a company that made little tiny precision gears at the small company that had 60, 60 employees, and they made small precision gears, some of which wound up in the Saturn V uh, booster. So he was, he was my hero when I was a kid. <laughs> well, and the focus is on Apollo 11, but it's interesting to look back and realize what an incredibly challenging and ambitious schedule NASA had in the six months prior to the moon landing with three trips, Apollo 8, 9, and 10, all laying the groundwork for the flight of Apollo 11. Yeah, you're, you're exactly right there, Rich. It's, um, it was... It was not only a very ambitious schedule, but but NASA was very lucky. Um, and those missions all went very well. We actually, you know, uh, in, you know, for planning purposes, the folks at NASA had assumed that at least one of those missions would would probably you know need to be either repeated or or there'd be some parts of that that have to redo on on some other mission. But but things went remarkably well in all of those missions, uh, in from late 1968 into early 1969. Um, and uh, you know we announced the crew of Apollo 11 um, in. Um, you know, January 1969, uh, and it was you know that was the the plan was that they would be the the first that might have a chance to land on the moon. But as the spring of 1969 went along with Apollo 9 going well and then Apollo 10, it, it you know became clear that that in fact they were going to be the the first crew to attempt the landing, and and it became clear. But it, it could well have been you know Pete Conrad as the first mm. man on the moon if uh, if there'd been a problem and in, in that in that um, assignment it slipped to Apollo 12. I think it was Tom Wolfe who coined the phrase, the right stuff. And, and when you look at the longevity that so many astronauts have had, uh, not only three men living today who've walked on the moon, but but so many of those crews from uh, not just Apollo, but the Mercury flights, uh, so many of those guys live to be into their 80s and 90s. So clearly they uh, they did have some of the right stuff. Yeah, I, I wonder sometimes that's a sort of magic. But uh, actually, I, I think part of it was... You know, the selection process, uh, particularly the Mercury Seven, and, uh, and and a little bit less so for the other ones, but but they had every every possible biological system tested. Mm. Uh, so so they were in, in extraordinary good health um, when they were selected as astronauts, and that probably helps uh, with the longevity question. But uh, also, uh, you know, there are guys who. Um, um, got good medical care. You know, most of them were military veterans, and and uh, and they also um, NASA. You know, we couldn't require them after they retired to come back to Houston for an uh, annual physical, but NASA gave every one of those guys an annual physical uh, for free every year um, because we wanted the data on how how you know their space experience uh, impacted their health. Uh, and for, for most of them, that uh, did well. So so they not only had the advantage of you know walking into the program with you know, um, generally, you know, good health to start with, but they were closely monitored um, after that. So then I think that probably, you know, contributed to the longevity. But, but yeah, you're right. There are, there are only a handful of folks left uh, who were, you know, flew in those Apollo missions. And um, sadly, uh, you know, many of them were passed from the scene just in the last couple of years. Mm. We're talking with NASA historian Bill Barry here on downtown. I, I was only 11 years old, but I was, I was a huge 
fan. Uh, my mother let me stay up and watch, woke me up uh, to watch Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin walk on the moon. Of all the things, my recollection as a little kid, of all the things that were scariest from a, uh, a layman's perspective at the time, because it had never been done before, it was the takeoff of the lunar module from the lunar surface. Was that was that also, from the perspective of the people involved, the most challenging part of the operation? Um, well, you know, Rich, you and I are the same age, actually. <laughs> I was both of it when we landed on the moon as well. Um, and, uh, um, uh, yeah, I, I remember it well, too. And, and uh, Actually, I managed to argue long enough with my parents that by the time they were finally getting ready to send me to bed, that they changed the schedule. Uh, for <laughs> Because originally the, the crew landed, and they were supposed to sleep. I don't know how they expected that to happen. <laughs> that was the schedule. Um, and so my, my mom and dad, like, you go to bed, we'll wake you up at 2 in the morning when we're walking the moon. And uh, I, I argued with them for a long time. They finally, you know, by, by the time they, they were sent me off down the hall, <laughs> Walter Cronkite comes out and says, oh, they're going to move up the landing or the, the moonwalk. And so I get to stay up. Um, but anyway, um, I, I, there are a lot of, there were a lot of things that were there were um, sensitive operations that we hadn't done. The launch from the surface was particularly critical because it relied on one rocket engine, uh, and if that engine didn't work, um, you know those guys were going to be stuck on the moon. Um, and and there actually was a, a close call on that one. Uh, the switch that they needed one of the one of the switches they needed to, to flip to enable that engine to fire uh, broke, and the, the switch part of it broke off. And uh, Buzz Aldrin very. <laughs> Very cleverly, they pulled uh, a, a felt tip pen out of his uh, pocket and stuffed it into the hole where the switch was, and <laughs> was able to move the switch with, with that. So, so they successfully got off the surface of the moon. Um, if you were to ask Neil Armstrong about it, I think he would have told you that the landing was probably the thing he was most concerned about. Well, because then he had to he had to do some of that manually, right? Yeah, yeah. They they uh, get that. There there are a number of things that. It's, if you don't know the lingo and you don't know what's going on, um, and it, it kind of sounds like, you know, they're just, you know, landing on the moon, no big deal. Uh, but uh, they had some computer alarms that went off that, that they weren't expecting, um, and those kind of raised the pucker factor. But the big problem was that um, they, we didn't understand the gravity field of the moon quite as well as we, as we would have liked at the time. And so the, uh, the, the, Eagle lunar module was landing, landing along. It kind of missed the landing point and was going to land further down, down its path than, than had been planned. And where it was going to land actually wanted to be a big field full of boulders. Um, and so uh, Neil didn't want to land on a big field full of boulders. So as he's coming down, he sees that, that that's where they're heading. And uh, he basically levels off at you know, a couple hundred feet above the surface and, and steps on the gas pedal to go sideways, you know, literally hovering over the moon and going sideways uh, to find a clear spot to land on. And, and meanwhile, the fuel is ticking down, and, and they landed with, you know, with you know, seconds of fuel remaining. Um, uh, and that, and that, was, that was probably the thing that was most... Um, the most critical thing, I think, uh, if you're to look at it. Uh, but again, you know, these guys are test pilots. They didn't, you know, if you're listening to the audio, you really don't get, you know, that anybody was nervous about it. it just sort of seems like, oh, well, okay, these, you know. But uh, when, they're, when they're calling 30 seconds of fuel remaining, it was people in Houston were really nervous. As we look back and celebrate this 50th anniversary this summer, I know that NASA is always subject to the whims of politicians as well, but what is the future of manned space flight? 
Uh, well, you know, um, President Trump has uh, said that we're going back to the moon and then on to Mars. That's uh, uh, the, the decision that we'd go back, that NASA would formally go on to Mars, has really been um, announced by the president, uh, President Bush, actually, back in the, uh, in 2003, and um, and the Congress approved that. So that's that's been our plan: is that we would eventually get there. Um, there, you know, how, when are we going to do that is sort of a big question, and that's driven by how much of a budget NASA has. Um, and typically, we've been running at sort of the same budget level. We, you know, back in the Apollo days, when we had to build NASA, I mean, we had to build entire centers, and we had to, you know, help colleges and universities build uh, faculties to get us the kind of people we needed to. to because, you know, there, there weren't any planetary geologists around mm. in, in the 1950s, so we had to, we helped. And a lot of the NASA, the $25 billion that the U.S. spent on on Apollo is spent not just on rockets and stuff, but it's a lot of it was building infrastructure. And so we've got that, that – we now get that infrastructure, so we probably don't need as much now. But back in those days, you know, at, at the peak, uh, NASA was getting about 5% of the, the federal budget. Um, and, and the public, generally speaking, didn't – you know, thought that that was too much. Um, so that, that was likely to get cut back anyway. Uh, these days, NASA gets about one half, less than one half of one percent of the federal budget. So, you know, we we produce a, a lot of great science and and uh, inspiration uh, on a pretty limited budget these days. Uh, sending humans out to other planets is going to take a little more money. And uh, just yesterday, um, uh, the president uh, sent a budget amendment over to Capitol Hill for the next year's fiscal year budget for so for the the. You know, spending year that starts October 1st this year, uh, they added $1.6 billion to their request of uh, the Congress um, to accelerate our plans to land humans back on the moon by 2024. So that's that's the plan. We're going to land um, uh, the first people back on the moon on the south pole of the moon uh, near Shackleton Crater on the south pole of the moon uh, in 2024. And, and, uh, and assuming the Congress uh, approves that spending plan, um, uh, it looks like we'll be on track to, to be able to meet that objective. Well, I hope this 50th anniversary hopes, uh, in some ways, helps to rekindle the passion that America had for this, not simply because of the science, but for what it did to uh, not only our nation, but to the world, coming together like we did perhaps at no other time in the summer of 1969. And if we can be reminded of that, maybe that will encourage people to be more supportive of this program, which I think has produced the greatest scientific uh, achievement in human history. Yeah, Rich, I, I agree with you. I think, and I think the timing is good. You know, people are, you know, I, I, I detect anyway in my interactions with the public. And it's hard to tell here at NASA because we're all we're all, <laughs> we're all giant fans of this stuff. But uh, but when I interact with people in the public, I, I, you know, people are sort of hungry for okay, we do, you know, it's been long enough. Let's let's get to it. People have been inspired by you know, science fiction and, and, uh, and superhero movies and whatever else that, that they're, you know, they're watching. And, and, uh, and I think, I think, I think there's a, an interest in, in pursuing that. And, and you're exactly right. I mean, the impact of Apollo on, um, on our society now is, is hard to imagine how much different the world is. And, it, and it, the impact is so widespread that it, I don't think people sort of notice it. I mean, in terms of you know, the boost of the economy from mm-hmm. technology, from our complete changing of our understanding of the universe, because now, you know, based on the samples we brought back from the moon, we, we found out that, in fact, the moon and Earth were formed by, uh, the, you know, the proto-Earth being hit by a, 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 a 
planet the size basically of Mars now, uh, and that that impact created what's now the Earth we live on and and the Moon that we that we know, um, and that you know that that Genesis story for Earth kind of changes our perspective on a lot of things uh, and, and changes our understanding of, of the universe. Um, and you know, there's this whole generation of people who have, um, you, know, you know, like you and I who came of age during the Apollo era, but also people who come after who've grown up with the understanding that, you know, if, if we set a big goal for ourselves and apply the right resources uh, and stay organized and focused, there's no end of what we can accomplish. I mean, you know, how many times have you heard people say things like, if we can put a person on the moon, why can't we, you know, fill in the blank? Right. Um, that attitude, I think, is, uh, is, has had a profound effect on, on not only the United States, but also the, our whole world. Bill, it's great to talk with you once again. Thank you so much for making time for us this afternoon. Richard, my pleasure. Uh, you know where to find me if you want to talk again. That's Bill Barry, a man who's uh, got some main roots and a great guy we've had on the show a number of times through the years talking about Apollo 11 here on this anniversary week. That'll do it for us on the podcast. Thank you to Bill Barry. Thanks to Joe Hagan as well. And thanks to you for being with us. We remind you, Downtown is brought to you by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. We'll see you next time right here on Downtown.